Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. In order to put the word at the center of your life and home, you have to be hungry for it. So it's a very important message. And this is what we're talking about. It's a very foundational message because we're talking about motivation. We're talking about getting hungry for the word. We talked about how we are commanded to do so many things with the word, to read it, to preach it, to study it, to proclaim it. But before we can do any of those things, we have to hunger for it. And that's what the passage that we're looking at last weekend today deals with. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, if you want to turn there. And the central exhortation revolves around the main verb and its qualifying phrase that says, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word. And that word long is a command. It's an imperative. You know, sometimes we, we flag somewhat in our desire for the word, right? If you're anything like, like me, many things can cause us to lose our appetite. We'll look at some of those in a moment. But it can be depression. It can be anxiety. Things that you have no control over, perhaps, and sometimes we need motivation to get hungry again. And the great thing is that Peter gives us five principal motivations for nurturing a desire for the word of God. And we looked at the central uh, exhortation last week, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. And we looked at the first principle for nurturing a desire of the word. And that is found in the first word of the first verse in therefore. Because therefore, the exhortation follows in the following verse, long for the pure milk of the word. The therefore points back to the previous paragraph, verses 22 through 25, I believe it is. And there, Peter reminds us that the word of God was powerful to save us. It was the word that brought purification of soul to us. It was the word of God that gave us the new birth. It was the eternal word that germinated into eternal life. And Peter says, therefore, remember what the word did at your salvation because it is not just powerful to save you, it is powerful still to transform you. Therefore, long for the pure milk of the word. He says, remember its transformative power at salvation and long for that power in your life now. So that's the first exhortation. Now we pick up this week with number two and following. And we'll do five. In my book, there's four. I scrunch two together, and you'll probably see why. But the second motivation for us to nurture a desire for the word is to simply eliminate your sin. Eliminate your sin. And of course, when I say that, short of dying, you can't. But we increasingly, through time and the grace of God, put away the things that harm us, right? Eliminate your sin. Someone has well said, remember, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore... Putting aside all malice and all deceit or guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. And this is a basic, very straightforward exhortation, isn't it? It's telling us that as long as 
We desire other things, fill our lives with other desires. Our singular desire for the word of God is going to be diminished. As long as we're desiring malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, etc., our desires will be polluted. They will be corrupted and we will not experience that singular uh, compulsion for God's truth. And so we're commanded, again, and uh, long is the only verb, but putting aside is the participle. It's also an imperative, meaning it's a command. We are commanded to take those things, those lusts, those longings, those desires, those appetites, those passions that are injurious to us, and to put them aside. And always remember, guys, that God is not after to kill your joy. He doesn't want to ruin your fun. But like the perfect parent that he is, he wants to keep you from things that will hurt you. And that's the motivation here. Think back to that little illustration that Peter gave us, right? Which was a baby. As we talked about last week, that little baby wants nothing but its mother's milk, correct? And in the singularity of that desire, what happens? It grows into health. But it isn't long before those little people are exposed to different options, right? And what typically happens when that happens? They tend to gravitate to everything that is bad for them, right? And the sweeter it is, the more processed it is, the better they like it. And as their appetites grow, their appetites become worse and worse and in fact, we're being bombarded continually by the medical profession to eat right, to eat better, to eat healthy. Because it seems to be an axiom that the older we get, the more our appetites disintegrate. We want bad things. And in a sense, that's analogous to what happens in the spiritual realm too. When you and I have a desire for the word and we consume that word, we're satisfied by that word. But when our desires get corrupted by all sorts of other desires for things that are spiritually unhealthy and debilitating and destructive, our desire for the word is diminished. And as we said last week, that's when we're in real danger. Because when we are not hungry for the word, we do not consume the word. When we do not consume the word, what happens? We become spiritually weak. We become susceptible to the, the wiles and the cunning craftiness, as we talked about, of our enemy. We become susceptible to spiritual disease, such as worry and such as preoccupation with the world and its stuff, or anger or hatred. So Peter says, look, we all need to deal with our sin. We need to strip it off, to put it away, to... It's a command to, to push it away from us. And notice that there are five things that are mentioned here. First of all, Peter starts off with all malice, putting away all malice. And that arguably is the most general term in the New Testament to refer to sin, to evil. It is a very broad, broad word. And it's translated baseness, wickedness, good-for-nothingness, disgracefulness, and it refers to the general evil of the pagan world, that malignant 
part of our flesh that just produces all manner of evil. And so it's used to talk about everything from illicit sexual desires to, like I said, a preoccupation with the world and its stuff. And, and it manifests itself differently in many people. My struggle may not be your struggle. Your struggle may not be mine, but it's malice. It's evil. It's sin. It, maybe you don't struggle with anger, but you struggle with lust or whatever it is. It, it expresses itself. And Peter says we need to identify what those illicit passions are, those illicit desires, and we need to eliminate them continually, increasingly from our lives if we're going to clarify and purify our desire for the word of God. Do you get that? You know, I've talked to a lot of people, and sometimes when I talk to believers who are having a real hard time with an appetite for the word, many people are filling their, their lives with all kinds of desires for the wrong things that fill them up, that fill up their minds, that fill up their longings and provide nothing beneficial for them spiritually. But those very things are crowding out their appetite for the word of God and they're poisoning them at the same time. Eliminate your sin. All malice. You know, we have to develop, guys, and pursue good appetites. That's why God has given parents to children, right? To create good appetites so that they'll eventually eat healthy so that they can become functional, healthy adults. Otherwise, if you let your kids eat whatever they want, what would happen? Well, they'd probably be little, tiny, shriveled up people that were very sickly. You know, I remember my son Josiah is here, and he was our most finicky eater. And I remember one day I was with him alone in the house, and my office is in my home. Val was away with the other kids. And um, he comes up to my office, and he says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Look at my watch, and I thought, okay, well, it's... It's almost straight up 12, Josiah. What do you say me and you would go downstairs and have some lunch? And then he said, he was getting bolder. He said, I want frosting. <laughs> we had recently had a birthday, you know, and we had some leftover frosting. It's like, oh, that's good food. I want frosting. And I said, hmm. I said, tell you what. Let's start off with some of that yummy broccoli casserole that mom made yesterday. And no sooner had the word broccoli left my lips. Before the word casserole had finished its course, he just, it was impressive. He collapsed in a moan on the floor. It was like, Voof! And he was going, oh, no, not the broccoli Anything but the broccoli, Dad, not the broccoli. And I look at my four-year-old at the time, just in a heap on the floor. And what I did is I just scooped up his little bones and skin and his little hair, blonde hair, and I rubbed his back. And I said, it's okay, buddy. Lots of people survive broccoli. <laughs> you know, gives you gas, but it, yeah, you'll be all right. It's good. And I took him downstairs and I fed him some broccoli. And probably a little spoonful of, uh, of sugar to boot at the end, right? But today, he loves many vegetables. And he's a healthy young man. 
Why? Because we intervened and we developed the good appetites and tried to eliminate those things that were harmful to his body. It's the same thing with us. You know, if you and I find ourselves in a place where we are not hungry for the word, we have to ask ourselves, why? Ask yourself, what is suppressing my appetite for God's truth? So he says, get rid of all malice. Whatever, however that identifies itself in you, put it away. Strip it off. In fact, this word is used often to, to speak of stripping off filthy, dirty clothing. The kind of clothing you get, like Eric gets, probably mucking out a horse stall. You know, it just before you go in and hug your wife and see your kids, you got to tear that stuff off and take a shower, right? That's the idea here. And then he says, get rid of all guile. That means deception, dishonesty, falsehood, seduction, treachery. In fact, it's the same word for fish hook. Because that's pretty beguiling, right? There's nothing quite so deceptive to a fish than a baited fish hook because the poor dumb creature thinks it's going to get lunch and it what? Becomes lunch. How? Through deception. Peter says, put that aside. You know, this one can really creep into our lives. I just said, you know, two people. Well, no, one person asked for the notes. You, you can find yourself going into deception without even thinking. Peter says, be truthful. Don't be deceptive. Don't be dishonest. Tell the truth because if you don't, that'll steal away your hunger for the word. You know, don't cheat on your income taxes. Speak the truth. Tell your boss the full story. Be truthful. And then he says, put aside hypocrisy or the Greek word is, sounds just like a transliteration, hypocrisis. And it means something that is not real, hypocrisy. Something not genuine, something phony, fake. It's uh, feigning godliness. This is the very thing that Jesus despised in the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? It was a false piety. In fact, in classical literature, classic Greek literature, uh, this was the word for actor, Actor. Not that actors are hypocrites, it's just that they play a role, right? That's the meaning of the word. Then he says envy, get rid of envy. This simply means to, to want what others have, to want to be what others are, to resent somebody else's situation because it's not your situation. And of course that leads to grudges and to bitterness and hatred and conflict and fighting. And then finally he says get rid of slander. That's an interesting word because it's only used in one other place in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12.20, and the King James translates it there, backstabbings. You get the idea? It's malicious gossip. It's uh, stabbing somebody in the back when they're not there, just saying evil things about them. It's an onomatopoeic word too, katalalalia. It sounds like what it is. You know, it, it's, it's, it's speaking disparagingly. Like I said, gossiping, being malicious, speaking unkindly. In other words, guys, you and I need to increasingly get rid of these passions and desires and wants in our lives because if our mind is filled with wicked things, with deceptive things, with hypocritical things, if our life is full of envy, and we despise people for 
maybe even legitimate reasons, that's, that's not good. If we're preoccupied with the evil and everybody else and we get a certain pleasure out of slandering them, if that's the pattern of our lives, then guess what? Our desire for the milk of the word is going to be polluted and we won't want it. Notice also, please, that there's a logical progression here in these sins. A general evil leads to deceit because a person needs to be deceptive about their true character. Someone was deceptive. Uh, this, of course, leads to hypocrisy because they need to put up a good front to cover up who they truly are. And, of course, that leads to hypocrisy, leads to envy of the genuine and generally leads to their ultimate slander. It's a pattern we can fall into. Peter says, in other words, if we're going to have a longing for the word, we have to clear our mind, we have to clear our heart, we have to clear our inner beings of these evil passions. If you have no desire to hear the word read, no desire to hear it taught, preached, no desire to learn it, to study it, then you better go back and remember you're short-circuiting its power which you experience at salvation. Long for that in your life again. And you better deal with some sin, all of us. We better deal with it. And I challenge you guys, and, and this is malice, it's in all of us. The, the envy can be in all of us. You know, These are sins that are like big, broad strokes of sin. We all struggle with something in, the, in these areas. But I challenge you, just take a few minutes this week and take the thoughts that we have shared this morning. And as you're meeting with the Lord with your Bible and you're praying, just... Take an inventory of your passions and ask yourself, is there anything that is polluting my need, my desire to take in the word of God? And confess it to the Lord. He knows. Confess it to him. And as far as it depends on you, by the grace of God, put it away. And then when it creeps up again, put it away again. And increasingly, grow in the grace and strength of Christ. So, remember the word gave you life. It's that powerful. Long for that power again in your life. Secondly, eliminate your sin increasingly. Thirdly, admit your need for the truth. If we're going to have a longing for the word, this is, this is important, guys. If we're going to have a longing for the word, there has to be a sense of humility and an admittance that we don't have everything we need yet. And this whole point is in Peter's illustration. A baby. You know, you give a baby its food, and it's amazing how quickly it'll come back, right? Even if it can't crawl. You know, doctors tell us, in fact, forget doctors, just ask one of the 300 new mommies in our congregation. You ask one of those mommies, how often does your baby, your infant, feed? They feed between 8 to 12 times a day. That's why dear mommies, right, Michael? Look so haggard sometimes. It's like, and they seem to feed especially hard between 1 and 5 a.m. They eat a lot. They're committed to it. What kind of baby are we talking about here what, that Peter talks about? The word for babies, the plural there, is brefe, the singular is brephos. And that's used to refer to a baby that is very, very young, including one in utero. 
In uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 41 through 44, it's used to refer to John the Baptist while he was still in the womb of Elizabeth. And uh, this is just an aside here, guys. The Bible never talks about an unborn child as a massive tissue. It does not have a word like fetus. It just says, that's a baby. In other words, that's a human person. And in verse 44 of Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit ascribes an action to that baby based on that baby's emotion. It said, when he heard the voice of, of Mary, what happened? He leapt for joy. Those are the Holy Spirit's terms, not mine. It's a person. But back to our point, it can be used to speak of the youngest of babies, even those babies that are still in their mother's tummy. And then it's also used in the next chapter, Luke chapter 2, verses 12 and 16, to speak of the Lord Jesus himself when he was wrapped and laid in a manger. That's right after he was born. So we're talking about a brand new baby, a baby that has just come out of its mother's womb in those newborn minutes and hours and days when it is so desperately dependent on its mother for its nutrition and so singularly devoted to that nutrition, right? Eight to 12 times a day devoted. And we talked about this last week. You know, the, the moment that baby is born, the nurses clean it up, the doctor cinches up the umbilical cord, and they what? They, they bring it to the mother where God has provided the nourishment they need and must have immediately. And that little baby has just that one desire. I don't, I don't want to raid on your parade, ladies, if you're decorating right now, but the baby doesn't care about the stuff we care about. It doesn't care, <laughs> even though your, your daughter, Jamal, is always dressed to the nines, right? <laughs> but that's, that's precious and that's good. But I guarantee you, Zeze has no appreciation for color scheme yet. <laughs> they don't care about the ribbons and the bows and the soft little blankets and the, the cushy toys and the color of its room. It can't even distinguish color yet. Everything's blurry and upside down. And it isn't until three to four months that they can distinguish color and even focus on small objects. So, you know, it can't tell the difference between that really amazing mobile that you bought him or her with ponies and unicorns and bunnies and butterflies. It doesn't know what those things are. It can tell the difference between that and those pudgy little fists of flesh that are seemingly flying around the room without any independent of its will. It's like, hey, somebody wrap those things up. They're hurting me. <laughs> that baby, beautifully, has one God-given instinct, right? To eat, to nurse, to fill itself with its mother's nutrition. And in that mother's milk, they get two basic things. They, they get their residual effects as well, you know, that the milk does. But it basically provides two things. One is nourishment. Do you realize that that baby, little Azalea over here, has produced everything that she is by God's genetic design from one source of milk or food. I mean, these babies, you know, produce the hair they need. They produce the external organ of the skin, the internal organs, the eyes, the, the heart, the liver, the bones, 
everything from one source of food. Talk about a power food. And they receive also not only nourishment, but they receive protection because they receive all the antibodies they need, including all the essential proteins that they need to fight off, ward off disease. And if that little baby does not get enough of its mother's nutrition, it will be malnourished, it'll be underdeveloped, and also it'll be unprotected. And that's why babies long to feed so instinctively and so desperately. It's because their lives depend on it. That's the illustration. Peter says, we need to long for the word in the same sense with the simple recognition that we don't have all that we need yet. This is what this illustration cries out. We are desperately, spiritually needy people. And we don't eat once and we're done with it. We have to feed all the time like that baby does. We need to make sure that we get the word of God so that we can discern truth from error. We need to take in the word of God so that we don't fall, as we said, to the wiles and cunning craftiness of the enemy, to the onslaught of, of that subtle temptation. You want the word because you don't want to be disobedient to the Lord. You want the word so that you can grow up spiritually. You want the word so that you can have the victory over sin and temptation. And you recognize that the Bible is the nourishment and the protection you need for that, and so you long for it because of that. You know, nothing I don't think upsets me more or as much as a person who thinks they've arrived to a place where they don't need serious Bible study anymore. See, do you run into people like that? Yes, I do. And one of the sad expressions of it that I've seen, manifestations that I've seen of it is in the pastorate. Where shepherds themse themselves are, are buying into a, a whole series of presuppositions. They're saying, our people don't need more preaching. They don't need more Bible exposition. We don't need more Bible study. We don't need more doctrine. What we need is better media, equipment, coffee. I've looked at probably well over a thousand church web pages. We're trying to identify 1,500 pastors to send our book to, and we want to make sure they're doctrinally aligned with us. Otherwise, we're going to take the book and throw it away. And I, we don't want to do that. It's a, it's a gift, and it costs us, you know, a good deal of money. But I've looked at so many websites and read well over a thousand doctrinal statements, and there's some churches that are apologizing for even having a doctrinal statement. But we make much ado about coffee. And don't get me wrong, there's a place for everything. We need good equipment, right? We need to put our best foot forward. We need to have, not need, but it's good to have good coffee. I hate bad coffee. That's all well and good. But we need, desperately need. I should put those other things are... are not absolutely necessary. What's absolutely necessary is the pure milk of the word. Because that's what nourishes the graces that make our existence as Christians possible. For, you know, forgiveness of one another. 
loving one another, being patient with one another. All those virtues are fed by the word of God. And guys, we, we ought never to think that we know enough about the Bible. That we know enough about God and his, the length and breadth and depth of his great person. We don't, we don't know enough yet. You know, when, um, when we get to heaven, one of the things I'm looking forward to is this. Our minds will be completely free from the effects and the influence of sin. The effects of sin. You know, I, my, my great aunt died of a brain tumor. My mother died of Alzheimer's. All that, the effects of sin are going to be gone. No more. There will be no mental illness in heaven. All of that is going to be healed. And just as much, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when the influence of sin is gone from my mind. Can you imagine that just for a day? Imagine it for an eternity. And our minds will be glorified. They will be minds as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That means our intellectual prowess and powers will be multiplied to what? You pick a number, power of 10, 100, I don't know. And we will spend eternity ravenously devouring the person of who God is, the knowledge of God, and never exhausting that great person with a perfect mind. What makes us think that we could know enough about him now? In his ways. We ought never to think that. A newborn baby craves the milk he realizes he needs desperately. And it is a desperate craving because there is nothing else that will do. And this is the way, guys, it ought to be with us in relation to God's word. We, we got to have it. It's got to be a desperation. It's got to be, we got to have it. We need to have the attitude of Moses and the end of chapter 6, the great Shema chapter, with the central statement of faith of the people of Israel. In verse 24, he tells the people, look, God's words are for our good. Always, he says, always. Not most of the time, but all the time. They're for our nourishment. They're for our good. And they are for our survival, for our protection, he says. You know, you just try to give an infant a bag of potato chips and see what happens. Don't try that at home. I'm not suggesting that. But they don't want junk food. God has instinctively given them a sense for what they need. And as believers, we need to recognize that we're like newborns and milk when it comes to our need for the Bible. As believers, we need to recognize, as Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 3.13 that, look, brethren, I, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I haven't arrived. I need help, Paul says. I need great help. Do you understand your desperation for the Bible? You know, why, why do we read the Bible? You know, sometimes you read the Bible for the wrong reasons. Don't read the Bible traditionally because that's what your people have done forever. 
You know, at a certain time, you have your Bible reading, cross that off, or your devotion, cross that off. Don't read it traditionally. Don't read it superstitiously because you think it's going to deliver some kind of charm. You know, I do my study now, I'm, I'm clear, I'm protected for the day. You know, a verse a day keeps the devil away kind of thing. Don't read it educationally to know the facts. Don't read it professionally for material for your next lesson. Don't read it inquisitively so that you can bring out all the latest data and appear to be a scholar. Read it, guys. Read it spiritually. Because you need its nourishment and protection desperately. Because you recognize that you can't live without it. And if you don't get it, you'll be exposed to great, great danger. Read it because you need it. Read it because you need it. If we're going to nurture a longing for the word of God, we need to remember the word gave us spiritual life and that power is still available to us. We need to purify our desires, eliminate our sin. We need to admit our need for the truth. And fourthly, we need to desire our growth. There's a couple things that are important here that I wanted to say, so I've made it a separate point. But in admitting our need, we are basically affirming our need to grow, right? But look at verse 2 again. There's a separate idea here I want you to see. He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, and here's the purpose clause, henna, in order that or that, by it you may what? Grow in respect to salvation. Guys, acknowledge that you need to grow. And understand that your ability to grow comes directly from your consumption of the word of God. We need to grow. We, we haven't arrived yet, like Paul said. We are still that wretched man that needs to be delivered from this body of death, Romans 7, 24. We need to fall in line with 2 Peter three eighteen that says or commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Desire your growth and recognize that only the word will grow you. The word will make you strong. It'll make you stalwart, effective, fruitful. We need to grow. You may ask, well, what happens when we grow? Glad you asked. Let me give you a short list. When you grow, this is true of any of us. When you grow, you increase in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Which means that you can make sense out of a lot of the issues of life. Life makes more sense, sense when you have spiritual understanding, spiritual wisdom, right? For example, many of you have asked me, well, how can I obtain, obtain spiritual wisdom to lead my family spiritually? You need to grow. It comes with the territory. When you grow, you also benefit from a deeper delight in spiritual things, which means that you become increasingly disconnected from this world. And you find your joy and your delight in the spiritual dimension, which is unchanging and utterly fulfilling for the Christian. That becomes your passion. When you grow, you will know a greater love for God, a greater joy in God. And consequently, you'll love this passing age much less. And you will begin to fulfill more of your God-given purpose, which is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. When you grow you will have an increase in faith and strength in the Lord. And consequently, you'll be able to deal with anything that comes at you at life, 
in life because you know that he is ultimately in control and you can trust him with anything. When you grow, you will know more consistent obedience and with obedience comes a consistent blessing that God pours out on those who obey him. So listen, if you desire spiritual understanding and wisdom, if you want to delight in spiritual things, if you want a greater love for God, a greater joy in the Lord, if you want more consistent obedience in your life and the blessing there that falls thereof, then you need to grow. And we grow, as Jesus said, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's our daily bread, Matthew 4.4. 4. So how do we cultivate a desire for the word? We remember that the word of life gave us spiritual life. That power is still available to us. Admit your need for the truth, desire your growth, and finally one more thing, and we'll close with this, and I love this. Peter simply says, survey your blessings. Survey your blessings. Look at verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter tells us, do a little survey. You're going to do a survey later on about your illicit passions? Do a survey of the blessings of God in your life. Don't, don't be like the Israelites who developed a complaining, ungrateful heart in the desert and dishonored God. They were faithless. Count your blessings. Do a little inventory. Have you tasted the kindness of the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. Because this could just as easily be translated, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, and you know you have, You've tasted his kindness. That word can also be translated goodness or graciousness. You've tasted his kindness, his graciousness in so many ways, at so many levels. You've tasted it in a myriad of answered prayers. You've savored it in his salvation and spiritual blessings in your life. You've seen it in his providence and in his protection of your your family, yourself. You've seen it in the grace that he has given to your spouse, to your children, to your family, to your friends. You've seen him bless you by bringing joy to your sorrow and comfort to your pain. And you've experienced his kindness in his mercies which are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We could go on and on. You've tasted the kindness of the Lord, haven't you? And all of those blessings should be at the top of our memory list and a thousand others like those. And every one of those blessings, guys, every one of them has come to you by way of the word, the promises of God. God is faithful. It is the word that has brought the grace of God to work in our life. Therefore, long for the pure milk of the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being such a gracious God. Lord, you uh, you command us to pursue the very thing that will make us joyful, fulfilled, strong. What a gracious God. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the treasure of your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, this time together last week and this week would help us stimulate a hunger for your truth. Lord, we need it. 
We thank you for giving it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.